Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome listeners to your continuation of the Futoshi Matsunaga case, a serial killer whose speciality was manipulation, coercion, and essentially commanding others to do his dirty deeds. Manipulation as the technique of distancing himself from the terrible acts he had instructed others to carry out, whilst in reality, he might as well have strangled, electrocuted, and maimed others with his own bare hands. This episode is not for little ears, and not safe for work. Please listen at your own discretion as it does contain explicit content. Before we begin, I want to respectfully place those that Futoshi and Junko took from this world ahead of these two criminals. The people's names are as follows. Kumio Toraya, Takashiga Ogata, Shizumi Ogata, Reiko Ogata, Kazuya Ogata, Yuki Ogata, and Aya Ogata, as well as Junko Ogata. Although she was his partner in that terrible journey, she too was a victim. Last week we learned more about Fatoshi and a little about Junko. I'll do a really quick summary though to bring everyone listening up to speed, and I'll hammer on the key points here. Futoshi, age 35, diagnosed with DAD, otherwise known as Disinhibited Attachment Disorder. In my opinion, this disorder shaped his interactions with those around him significantly, and detrimentally altering his method of communication to favor aggressive actions opposed to positive or neutral actions. Growing up, Futoshi was prone to mood swings, aggressive behavior, and outbursts, deepening into psychotic yelling and unstable mood swings. People noted that he would flip from kind to cruel as quickly as a smile or a frown. His initial criminal acts stemmed from fraudulent activities, but his home life saw him deliver physical and mental abuse to his family and those he loved. What really initiated his killings was the steady increase over the years of enabled abusive behavior to the people around him, and the environment that allowed him to act with impunity. From a legal perspective, he had at this point stolen over 2 million yen, and that initiated Futoshi and Junko's run from the law, placing them on Japan's most wanted list. It was at this point in the last episode where I stopped. I know I've streamlined it a lot, so if you want to go back and listen to the first part, I'll include the link in the show notes. Now, let's jump back into the research. Futoshi spiraled down into insanity and the world of serial killing began really in 1992, being chased by the police for fraud. Now, during this time, whilst on the run, Futoshi and Junko moved from city to city, evading the law at every moment, and somehow being able to find a place to stay. Here is where I had to pause though, and I began thinking to myself, how the hell was that possible? You have the police who are chasing you down, that are on alert for your presence in the streets across multiple cities, and you're moving in a very localized manner within a very small geographic space. How can you not get caught? Most sources actually skip this part of the logic and go straight into the first murder, but I wanted to dig deeper here. And reading through multiple journals and reports, I found out the connection. Turns out Fatoshi made contact with an old school friend at the same time he was being chased down for fraud, and this would serve as the opportunity to keep Fatoshi and Junko safe from the police, and ultimately, justice. 
Also, this was the first step of the beginning of the end. The friend Futoshi contacted was Kumio Toraya, who worked for a real estate firm. Yes, that's right. I'm sure you can put two and two together here. He used that connection to stay in multiple residences and commit the murders he would later be convicted of. Kumio initially served as his hideout hustler, keeping him safe from the law. But like all of Futoshi's relationships, it's not about a friendship of give and take. It's all about Futoshi, and it's all about taking. Futoshi needed a way to get Kumio, a valuable connection to sit under his thumb indefinitely. How would he do this? How could he convince his friend to always be there for him? The answer is, of course, blackmail. Futoshi would actively talk about his fraudulent activities, physical abuse stories and crimes directly to Kumio. In essence, implicating Kumio in his activities as one who would be concealing his crimes, blackmailing Kumio into giving him more and more residential access and places to stay. In other words, if you don't help me, I'm going to confess to the police you helped me get this far. To Kumio, that was damning. Futoshi knew where to put pressure on people and knew which kind of people to target. He had enough practice weaseling and ensnaring his targets during his teenage years and knew which buttons to press. By the end of this, Kumio handed over his entire will, his fortune, and forced Kumio to write false confessions about abusing his own daughter and stealing money from the real estate company. All this to finally set up Kumio's death and create a quick untethered getaway for Futoshi. He had manipulated and sucked Kumio dry of his future. Everything Futoshi touches becomes corrupted. I'll touch back on this later regarding how Futoshi went about doing this to Kumio, but I wanted to reveal this information right now to give you all an understanding of how Futoshi was capable of escaping the law at that time. So, whilst all this is taking place, in parallel, Futoshi meets a mother in the city of Kokurakita-ku, who was married with three children. And from 1992 to 1993, Futoshi develops a relationship with this woman, and convinces her to run away with him, on false promises and deception, claiming that Junko, his wife at the time, was in fact his sister, now, this is believable due to her features and bodily build of Junko, but she would still have been roughly 32 at the time, so I guess plausible that she could have appeared that young, and even related. With assurances, of course, from Futoshi, there was no reason for the seduced woman to believe otherwise. Someone's physical age at face value may appear much older or younger than that of another person who is of the exact same age. So Junko's smaller frame may have been easily passed off as a younger sister in this case, or even his daughter if Futoshi had wanted to. Now understanding Futoshi's methods here, based on his situation, he's becoming more aggressive, more reckless, with nothing to lose. He needs money, safe haven, and importantly, to remain in control. He pulls this woman into their world and begins immediately putting plans into motion to murder and defraud her and her children. On September 1993, one of her three children die in his custody. They put it down to mysterious or suspicious circumstances, which, I mean, is a given, and warrants investigation. Somehow, though, Futoshi was again able to manipulate the woman into feeling that it wasn't his fault. But she did suspect something. 
and the treatment by Fatoshi began to worsen with his true colors coming to the surface over time. The woman then sent off her two remaining children to live with their father and grandfather in 1993, ultimately saving their lives. It took a whole year for Fatoshi to drain the life out of that poor woman, defrauding her of 11.8 million yen, equivalent to 110,950 US dollars. And in 1994, she died. Some reports say he did in fact kill her, others say she passed on. I mean, they weren't able to find any proof tying their deaths to Fatoshi of both her and her child, but yes, it is difficult to think otherwise. But lack of evidence is a running theme regarding Fatoshi's murders, and would play an integral role in how he is later convicted of these murders. If a tree falls in a forest and no one is around to hear it, does it make a sound? Figuratively, perhaps not. But in reality, yes. But the reality doesn't reflect that. Of course it makes a sound. No evidence, mates, means no conviction. With this information, we can only speculate, despite what appears to be damning information on both these deaths, that it could still be from natural causes. And the police were unable to attribute these two deaths to his name. And with Fitoshi manipulating records, no one would know his connection to those deaths. Now let's swing back to Kumio. The man he blackmailed and extorted over this two-year period, of which had a daughter. Her name was never divulged, so I'll refer to her as Kumio's daughter in this case. Kumio had also confided in Fatoshi that he had, himself, been a criminal, and committed crimes that would lead to his arrest, so he would say. But in fact, this was not the case. His daughter would testify that he never committed any crimes at all. They were total fabrications to impress Futoshi and maintain his friendship early on. So really, Kumio is being hit from both sides here, falsifying information to befriend the man that he feels is his friend, and then only to be blackmailed for eventually knowing the real criminal activity committed by Futoshi and for the fake criminal activity that Futoshi would pin on him. Goodness, the concept of burning the candle at both ends here really resonates. But of course, there's no way Kumio would know that Futoshi would use this information against him. The recent two deaths had pushed Futoshi in a different direction though, and I feel in most ways into a more aggressive approach to how he deals with his targets. One of course that I can only speculate was a method he deduced when dealing with the previous mother and child. Futoshi would confine Kumio and his daughter to their room, torturing them relentlessly by electrocution. And yes, this is a callback to his early means of scaring and manipulating people. This would be a method all the way back in the 1980s where we saw him begin the use of this tactic, where he would electrocute his employees on the soundproof floor of his company. Now we're seeing the escalation of this technique on those that he would target. Kumio would be electrocuted with exposed wires, beaten, forced to eat his own feces, and eventually starved to death all the while having his daughter watch, and then forcibly participate. And there is another aspect of this information that was truly terrifying, and this was regarding the mental state of Kumio during this whole process. His own daughter reported that during the entire ordeal of being beaten, electrocuted, tortured to death, Kumio never resisted or fought back. Not once. Which is just awful to hear. And I can only assume he did so, so as to ensure his daughter would remain unharmed. The last words he said, 
in Junko Futoshi's and his own daughter's presence was, I hope that Junko's baby will be born healthy. This really was a comment of a lost mind. His mind had been completely shattered. And the effect of being electrocuted constantly and the manner in which Futoshi did this must have had some serious psychological effect on the people he abused. You'll find that all those that he electrocuted exhibit some kind of mental deterioration, and significantly so. Of course, being electrocuted brings pain, but I could never understand the severity and damage caused at being shocked at that level of intensity over hours and days, and the psychological impact that this has on people exposed to this level of torture. It would undoubtedly leave them forever changed, and in this case, led to Kumio's death. After all this, Kumio died on February 26th, 1996, at age 34. Shortly thereafter, Futoshi, of course, wanted to distance himself from the murder, and again forced someone else to do his dirty work. Kumio's daughter would do just that. He forced her to bite deeply into her father's body to leave a mark. They took a photo of the mark as proof of her involvement and responsibility, whilst also coercing her to write a confession letter that she had killed her father. Futoshi even convinced Kumio's daughter that she did in fact kill her father and was forced to help the pair throw his body into the Kunasaki Peninsula. It was during that process that she cracked. Her culpability in this crime, her father's death by her hands, at least in her mind, fractured her psyche. So much so that she felt there was no way out, other than to join them. Working with them and for them, till 2002. So, a quick recap on the Futoshi process of manipulation. Enamor the target, lure them in, ensnare, defraud, and condemn through coercion. Futoshi would follow that same method day in and day out without fail, relying on blackmail as the fulcrum to get everyone to listen to his demands. If he feels people aren't being compliant, or aren't falling under his command quickly enough, Electrocution was brought in for the final form of persuasion, so we can witness a staged approach of how he breaks down his target psyche and eventual control over their will. Through Kumio's, through Kumio's daughter, Fudoshi would then find another connection, another foothold to push him into obtaining more money and supposedly his freedom. Again, a married woman with children, in this case who had a three-year-old daughter. Upon visiting Futoshi at his home, he trapped them, locked them in a room, and extorted all their money, information for blackmail, and the woman's sanity with it. The mother leapt out of the window to escape, and was taken to a psychiatric hospital in 1997 due to the severity of her mental illness. Her daughter was given to her ex-husband, dropped on the front of his doorstep without a word. There's no further investigation here, and I can only assume that the severe mental trauma inflicted on the woman was enough to have her never talk to the police about Futoshi and Junko. Futoshi would also steal 5.6 million yen from her, all her money, all her savings, and ruined her financially. In other life, he has corrupted, and the potential future of her child as well. Absolutely disgusting. In 1997, something unexpected happened that would trigger a myriad of more awful events. Junko went to work as a bar hostess in Yutbu-in. 
Junko, however, did not return from work that day. Futoshi waited and waited, and Junko never appeared. He became nervous, reaching out to Junko's family for money and loans to keep him afloat, in which every request was denied at that point. Futoshi felt like his safety was slipping. He needed Junko back, needed that control, and needed a minion. He called her parents and her family, and just like Kumio's blackmailing technique, shared the information that she had murdered Kumio with Kumio's daughter. If she didn't come back, he would tell the police another blackmail to get what he wants. So they conducted an elaborate hoax to bring Junko back. With their help, he faked his own death. This really gets under my skin here, because there are so many issues with the situation, and how Junko's family handles Futoshi that had me baffled. They go along with the plan of faking Futoshi's death and help him orchestrate the entire thing. So instead of taking him to the police with only a confession, mind you, or finding Junko first and getting the truth, or hell, finding a way to trick Futoshi, they just go along with helping him lure Junko back. And that lure worked. Junko returned as she thought Futoshi had died. Would that not tell the family the kind of relationship she has with him? And what kind of person Futoshi is that Junko would only return upon his death? It was at this point, with his face-to-face -face interaction with the family, that Futoshi saw more opportunity than ever before in obtaining his financial fortune from the Ogatas. And by plying them with alcohol, gaining their trust and their secrets, the strategy he used before worked as before. Over time, he would dig deeper, garnering information about their family that they would hold dear, and again, like Kumio, hunted for that information that would bind them to Futoshi's slavery. That's the equivalent of 592,545 US dollars. The biggest theft that Futoshi has stolen to date. You know, mates, people have called this guy the mind control murderer. But I want to take him down a peg here. This guy was more like a mouse that found the path out of a maze. He realized the nature of the people in his town, and he pressed the buttons over years of unhindered practice, cruelty, and malice in a community that was inherently unable or unwilling to stop him. He's nothing more than that though, a mouse who's found a pathway in and out of a maze on repeat. The aspect of fighting back or absence of any conflict is what simply enabled this mouse to keep taking that path. And I can't help but feel that the period in which his actions were carried out also acted as an enablement to that fact. I could be wrong, but through my own research, that's my current hypothesis. After Junko returned, and Futoshi had obtained all of the Ogata family's secrets, Futoshi would capture and confine the entire family continued to tighten his hold by finding ways of implicating the family in his affairs, namely the murder of Kumio by asking Ogata family members to change the piping in the bathrooms and bedrooms, implicating the family further in covering up Kumio's murder. And Junko would watch this, witnessing Kritoshi threatening her family, blackmailing them, knowing full well it's her connection to Kritoshi that put them in this situation. During this time, Junko's conscience began to eat away at her. The torture, the beating, the manipulation, and constant control from Futoshi forced her into attempting two separate escapes. One time she ran away to get into a taxi, where Kumio's daughter, 
yes, she was still with them at this time and still fully brainwashed by Fatoshi, ran after her and smashed on the taxi window repeatedly, drawing attention, making a scene, and causing Junko to give up, but not completely. The second time, Junko would run away to catch a train, and yet again, Kumio chased after her, letting Fatoshi know exactly where she was, and giving up once she saw him at her next train stop. The second escape by Junko was in fact one that would save her own life. As she had intended to travel to Ayokigahara Forest near Mount Fuji to kill herself, this is a detail that Junko would later testify in court over to confirm her mental state at the time. In 1997, more chaos would unfold with the Ogata family, as Futoshi was seduced Reiko, Junko's sister. She was married with two children, a 10-year-old Aya and 5-year-old Yuki. Her husband, Kazuya, noticed his wife's long absences from home and the children, and eventually realized that she was visiting Futoshi more and more. It was Futoshi that initiated the conversation around his wife and him, and would then go on to blackmail both of them, bring them under his control. He knew that Ryoko had contemplated divorce from Kazuya, and also that she had an abortion in the past. The shame this would bring the family would tear them apart. Alongside this, Futoshi forced Kazuya to change the tiles in the bathroom where Kumio died, using this again as a means to implicate Kazuya in concealing evidence. At this point, there was no escape from Futoshi, unless they wanted their information publicly shared. And at the time, the entire family was living with each other, including the children. It was right around the time of November in 1997 that the police were catching up with Futoshi. They were sniffing around his old residences and putting more and more pressure on him, and the chance of exposing him began to raise significantly. Realizing this, he placed the entire Ogata family into lockdown, confining them all to one room. Now I mean complete lockdown. No one went in or out, and all the rooms in his house were bugged with microphones and cameras. This also meant no job, no money, nothing. All unemployment incomes were sent directly to Futoshi. Now, for my true crime veterans, you'll begin to notice the cultish aspect starting to take form here, and the spiral that you can begin to notice for cults like this. The one that starts pulling the whole process apart. You see, listeners, this is different from Futoshi's normal method of operation, and carries with it significant risks. In my opinion, he's running out of options from a safety perspective, locking down his liabilities, the Ogata family, and setting up as many controls as possible to keep track of those liabilities. Alongside this, he's working on a means to mitigate as much risk as possible, without getting his hands dirty. And this is when it begins to escalate out of control. The mouse is out of the maze and doesn't know what to expect. Fudoshi begins his manipulation again, and this time doubling down on the Agata family. He targeted grandfather Takashige for not bringing any new money in. Culturally, he is the family elder and targeting him weakens the resolve of the family and yes, well aware that they were unable to generate money due to the enforced lockdown. But really, what annoyed Futoshi was that he failed to sell the Ogata family house that would bring in more cash for Futoshi to remain the way he is. Junko would then be tasked with electrocuting Takashige over and over and over again. 
and with such a degree of damage to his body and mind that it left him in a coma and led to his inevitable death. Futoshi would even then go on to blame the death of Takashige on Aya, who was 10 years old at the time, because she once told him she had a dream of her grandfather dying after an argument, and as a 10 year old I can't imagine the guilt and trauma that caused her. Soon after this ordeal, Futoshi convinced the entire family to dismember, remove the corpse, and decapitate the body, again involving them in the crime and making them complicit. At this point, there was no chance of escaping Fatoshi's grip. They all put loose body parts in the blender and boiled everything else until it was liquefied, then threw it in the ocean or public toilets. At this point, the mental state of the Ogata family members were in complete disarray and almost complete disconnect from reality. Whilst they were melting the corpses down and dismembering the body, they took Christmas pictures and birthday party pictures with Yuki. Pure madness mates, absolute insanity. Now listeners, we'll pause at this point for now, where next episode I'll cover the remainder of the murders, the discovery of this entire horrible situation, the science behind electrocution on the mind, particularly mental pliability, and the Japanese justice system. Thank you so much for listening, and we have a brand new white tea warlord, but I wanted to celebrate them on Monday's old time radio episode instead of this episode. I just feel it's disrespectful to those deceased on this particular episode. A big thank you though to all my supporters. I'll be sure to thank you personally on Monday. Mates, have a wonderful weekend and join me next week for more OTRs, creepy tales and part 3 of Futoshi Matsunaga's case. As always mates, till next we meet.